The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or ethical medical teams. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 6th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Becky Newman, Orange Coast Chapter President of the League of Women Voters, for a time-honored ritual, will cover the League's positions on statewide propositions on the general election ballot. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Returning to the show to talk about the statewide proposition on this year's general election ballot is Becky Newman. She'll be my guest for the full hour on this show. She is president of the League of Women Voters of Orange Coast, where she served in several other offices. She's been an advocate all her life, including her supporting the Methodist Migrant Ministry while still in elementary school. She's taught preschoolers through doctoral students, as well as parents and paraprofessionals. She's bilingual in Spanish, and most of her career was working within the Hispanic community. The last 10 years of her career were devoted to after-school education, and including work as a consultant with the California Department of Education and as chief program officer for a nonprofit providing after-school programs in low-income communities. Becky has taken her activism out of state with generous allotments of time to campaign for federal candidates. I guess it may not be happening this year with the COVID protocols to keep everybody safe. (laughs) Becky completed her Bachelor's of Arts at UCI and both her Master's in Education and Education PhD at UCLA. Her doctoral dissertation concerned the educational challenges of homeless students and their families. Becky comes to us today from her home in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Becky Newman. Glad to be here. Today, we're recording this interview on October 2nd, but at the broadcast is the day that the actual vote-by-mail ballots are going on October 5th. So we'll go through all of the propositions and Becky will talk about whether the League of Women voters have weighed in with having a position or giving sorts of pros and cons. We're going to be navigating this in a way that only advances everybody's understanding. And then sometimes it will, there will be an, a sort of an advocacy role that she'll be performing. So let's talk first about Proposition 14, the bond to continue the stem cell research with the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. What have you to say about Prop 14? Thank you, Claudia. And the first thing I want to do is issue a slight disclaimer. Um, For league reasons, we can't call this a pros and cons because I'm also going to be telling you what the league actually recommends. I just have to save my skin there. All righty. So first of all, the league is neutral on this position. And that is because we support stem cell research but we have some real concerns about this particular way of funding. I think all of our listeners will certainly know what stem cells are, that they're a special kind of sense of human cell, which can grow into other types of cells. 
And particularly useful are the embryonic stem cells, which are at the very beginning of their capacity to evolve into other kinds of cells. And they are studied to find treatments for different kinds of sicknesses and just to understand better the progression and um, genetic structure of these diseases. In 2004, California voters did approve $3 billion in bonds to pay for stem cell research and medical studies, especially because the Bush administration, as you may all remember, yes. outlawed the use of federal funds for most embryonic stem cell research, a decision which was actually later reversed by the Obama administration. If it passes, it would authorize the use of $5.5 billion in general fund monies to repay and the, bo the bonds would be used to continue funding stem cell research through the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. It would dedicate one and a half billion specifically to brain-related diseases such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, and it expands related programs. If the state stem cell research leads to new treatments, they might get some money back to use for treatments, but the amount, of course, is not yet clear. Now, here's getting down to the basics. The League does support stem cell research, but First of all, general obligation bonds are designed in most regularly for the long-term financing of capital products, the purchase of facility for public use, and for repair or retrofitting of public facilities and structures, not for funding specialized research by an entity that has very little state oversight. In addition, the legislature, if this passes, will be prohibited from changing the law without a 70% supermajority vote, thereby really restricting state representatives' ability to carry out their responsibilities, especially in a time uh, of great danger, such as the one we're in now. And if there are profits from the intellectual property agreements, they could only be spent on more research funded by the same institution. It doesn't seem like this is the way to do it, particularly since the original trigger, the refusal of the federal government to be involved in stem cell funding was the reason for the first bond that has been reversed. And it has already made California a leader in stem cell research and private monies are also very interested. So we're recommending a no. The big supporters, not surprisingly, are the folks involved in doing the research and running that organization. Opponents have raised only $250, whereas supporters have raised over eight and a half million. So to do the shorthand that the Voters Edge, that the League of Women Voters has running yep. website, that we could refer people to that so they can look up the kind of funding that, because that's going to be a, a moving target, the actual funds. It is. They can go and look. If they really want to delve into it, they've got to go to the Secretary of State's website uh, that lists all the organizations that are required to report. And they may have to then break that down by looking at the Political Practices Commission website, yeah. which will yeah. tell you the top 10 contributors. But Voters Edge is a good place to start. Okay. Knowing that everything you look at has a different calendar. So what the Secretary of State says is the total donations is not what the federal fair practices, the state fair practices political commission recommends. They'll, they'll have a slightly different calendar, so the numbers will never exactly match. Okay. But that gives you the idea. But and yeah, in the interest of time, I think we'll, we'll refer people to those tools. And because we're mindful that there will be changes in those numbers from day to day to week to, and accelerating change as we approach November 3rd. Well, exactly. let's go on to the next proposition 15. It's dealing with the property taxes collected for uh, the local government level that go to the state. And I want to have you talk about that in a context and talk about what 15 does as well as what Prop 19 does with 
property taxes collected in the state of California. That's right. Prop 13 is getting an outing in this uh, particular round of, of uh, propositions. The old uh, Prop 13. We can't, we're gonna, that's an the old, old prop number. 13. Right. right. So the old the new 13. numbers are Prop 15 and Prop 19. Exactly so. But I think almost everybody, when they think about property taxes, Prop 13, unless you're awfully young, comes immediately to mind. Okay. So here is Prop 15 which is also no, it, it has a big fancy name, increases funding sources for public schools, blah, blah, blah. But most people are calling it either the split role initiative or the schools and communities first initiative. The league is recommending a yes vote. Everybody knows, I think, what commercial property is. I don't need to define that for you. Okay. But under Prop 13, the old Prop 13, owners of commercial property pay taxes based on how much the property is worth at the time it was purchased. Those taxes go up a small percentage each year, just as residential ones can go up a small percentage each year under this proposition. Money from property taxes goes to local governments, cities, counties, public schools, special districts, such as library and fire districts. It would change the rules for taxes on commercial property. So we're splitting the role. That's why this is called a split role. Commercial property is now would be treated differently from the other kinds of property covered by the old Prop 13. First of all, Commercial property would be taxed based on what the property is worth now instead of small increases every year based on its purchase price. Those new rules would only apply to people and businesses that own more than $3 million in commercial property. You own a small donut stand, you're not affected by this. There will be no changes to the current practice of taxes on residential homes, and agricultural property, which has worried a lot of people. It would also lower the taxes on business equipment, such as machines or computers. That particularly would help small businesses, but it would also help big businesses. So there obviously is gonna be some fiscal impact, more taxes, uh, so that's one thing, but counties might need to spend more money collecting the taxes, but because more taxes would be paid into the system, local governments, which have been badly stopped, badly affected by the Prop 13, the old Prop 13 limitations, would get a new source of funding to support all of the work that cities and special districts do. About 60% of the new monies would head there and 40% would go to schools and community colleges. We don't know how much would be raised by this proposition. <laughs> we didn't know even before COVID. We certainly don't know now, but the estimates are between six and a half billion and eleven and a half billion dollars would start to roll in starting in 2025 under this proposition. Again, of that about 60% would go to cities and about 40% would go to schools and community colleges. If we have time, I can give a couple of examples for Irvine. Well, I want, I mean, if to break it down the formula too with it gets at the ownership of commercial properties. That there's been a kind of a loophole that's allowed for- that's next on my list. Okay, thank you. Okie dokie. So first of all, the reason the league is supporting this is fairness to local governments, schools, and other special districts, which have been hurting very badly with the reduction in property tax revenues relative to the rise and everything else. And it would eliminate a really big property tax loophole, which is this. Corporations and executives and shareholders can change over time, but the legal property owner, the company, does not. So for example, if you had to take a small property, not that small, a Chevron station, if 
you or your family or your corporation had owned that Servon station when the old Prop 13 went into effect in 1978. And if across the street, someone else has come in and bought a Servon station or put up a Chevron station, the property tax you pay as a pre-Prop 13 owner and the property tax she pays as a new Chevron station owner are miles apart. All of the money that's anticipated to come in will come primarily from 10% of our most expensive non-residential commercial properties, those folks that are sitting in that sweet spot. And we should all know about that if we're in my age range anyway. When I married my husband, after the deaths of our late first spouses in 1992, we had a five bedroom house in Irvine on which the mortgage was at that point $350. And of course it's been paid off for a really long time. But if our kids, or God forbid now our grandchildren are coming into marriage age, were to try to move into Irvine in this same house, not our same, same house, if they'd inherited it. A comparable house, yes. A loophole there, but you know where I'm going. Yep. That's what that loophole is all about. And whether it was by design or just worked out that way, who knows? But some corporations have found ways to, whatever they do, make sure that they retain some kind of minimal ownership just enough to keep hanging on to that huge property tax advantage that dates back, in most cases, to as far long ago as 1978. So that's the big deal here. And it's really almost the whole deal. So if you look at who's opposing the bill, it's people like the Business Roundtable and other big owners. Uh, the last time I was looking, there was something like $28.3 million uh, being spent against this proposition. And one of the contributors, the Business Roundtable, was accounted for $24.4 million of that. Wow. And similar organizations were the rest. The supporters have actually raised a little more money. They're at $37.3 million. Most of that comes from um, either do-good organizations like the League, where I think the lowest of the reportable contributors, uh, on up to the Teachers Associations, Service Employees, the Zuckerberg Foundation, folks like that, who are contributing smaller amounts, but primarily people who stand to benefit if indeed the starvation funds that schools and cities have been existing on um, were to increase. So teachers, for example, are very interested in seeing more money for schools. So that's kind of what that's about. It's kind of not rocket science, but there's certainly a lot of smoke and mirrors. Although I think we also have to realize that anytime there's a change, there are sometimes someone, we could say this about any proposition from now until the rest of our natural lives. There sometimes are unintended consequences. Things do get confusing. Sometimes we have to go back and correct them. I'm not seeing big things like that out there on the horizon with this one. No. Okay. But you can always make like, predictions. <laughs> and sometimes and it, there's more to meet the eye. And it's a, it is one of the largest redistributions of, of wealth. In the, it, there, it is fundamentally huge. It is. And there are people, this is not the league's official position at all, but there are certainly people out there who, who are struck by the fact that my husband and I benefit from this. We're not at the top 1%, but we, we probably should be paying more taxes. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, so I'm going to reintroduce my guest, is Becky Newman. She's president of the League of Women Voters of Orange Coast. And we're 
Now we're in a, if we can, go on to Proposition 19, how that affects property taxes. Alrighty, here we go. An important thing to remember, we are pairing these propositions, but the League is representing yes, is, intends to get you to vote yes on Prop 15, but we want you to vote no on Prop 19. It is another look at the Prop 13 that we've just been discussing from 1978. And it makes some changes, but let's hear about what they are. Okay. So we already know that we all pay property taxes, that they're based on how much the property was worth at the time it was purchased, and they go up a small percentage each year. And that, thanks to Prop 13, there were some special groups, such as people over 55 and people with disabilities, who could buy a new home without paying property taxes once in their lifetime in California. So, for example, if my husband and I were to sell this house, we could take that exemption with us to the next house. Also, if you inherit a house from your parents or grandparents, your property taxes would also be, low, be lower. If my husband and I passed this house to one of our kids upon the death of the second of us, they would inherit that same lower tax rate. On the other hand, if they had to buy this house from somebody else, then they would have to pay a bajillion dollars more and they would have much higher taxes. So here's what Prop 19 would do if it passes. Current homeowner rights would apply for moves all over the state. The way it is now, some counties have partnered together to say, okay, if you sell your house in Orange County and you want to move to Shasta County, we'll let you bring that property tax exemption with you. Others do not. But if 19 passes, then anybody who has some kind of an exemption could move anywhere in the state without losing that property tax exemption. And people who were over 55 or disabled could actually invoke those rights three times. So move from here to Shasta County and then to Santa Rosa County and then down to San Francisco County where we need medical care, we'd carry that property tax exemption with us each of those moves. There's also a change somewhat in the other direction for inherited properties. Right now, if a parent gives to a child or a grandparent to a grandchild, if there's no intervening generation. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. So if for some reason one of our kids and their spouse died, then their child could have carry that same Prop 13 exemption. So that was what happened with Prop 13. But under Prop 19, only if that house that was passed down to the child or the grandchild would be used for, or property would be used for farming or as the primary home of the recipient would still qualify for the exemption. So that's an interesting and rather important change and, yeah. and I think an equitable one, actually. Right. Um, and in the case of some very expensive ones, even if they pass directly to a child or a grandchild who made that their permanent Primary. residence mm -hmm. or their major resident, there would be some limitations on how much property tax savings they would get. They would get some, but they wouldn't get the whole nine yards as they would currently. So that's, that's a change in the direction of equity. The others, um, not so much. So the potential fiscal impact is that governments would gain some millions of tens of millions of dollars, probably in property tax revenue, probably growing over time to a few hundred million, and schools would get some gains as well. Because more people could sell and buy homes without increasing their property taxes, 
some states and localities might see some increased gains in revenue from other taxes. So for example, we think about we sell our house, that's about property tax, but there's a lot of other taxes involved. Right, in the transaction yeah, fees. Exactly. So they're, and that's they're the driver of the support for this. Uh, it's one. Yes. Uh, certainly from the real estate folks. However, this is an interesting hooker. Most of those funds go to a special fire protection services fund and another smaller fund that's associated mm -hmm. with local taxes. But the money can only go there. And some funds would go to certain local governments for other purposes. But right now, that might sound good. We all figure we could use some more money for firefighting. But again, I think there's a flexibility issue here. Every time we put something into the Constitution that might sound good in the moment, then we're stuck with it. And it's really hard to get it back out. It's one of the reasons that the league would like to see a much stripped down constitution. We put way too much in our California constitution. It makes it very hard to change things. Yeah. So the league feels like it doesn't really address the inequities in current property tax system, i.e. the I can live here, but my kid who has the same kind of job I had at his age can't buy here because the prices are ridiculous uh, on new homes and the property taxes are too. And it doesn't increase housing stock. It just lets housing stock change hands, right? Right. But it, it does nothing about the shortage of homes, which is a big problem and the big driver of high costs for rent and for purchase here in California. If you've only got 50 blocks, you can rearrange them any way you want to, but you still have 50 blocks. And unless you get 100 blocks, you're not going to see any more access or any more lower cost access. So that's a huge issue that is not addressed. And then the final one is, although firefighting sure as heck sounds good today, but let's make those decisions in a more flexible way, but that can be responsive to whatever the time we are in happens to be. I mean, this year we have the double whammy. We have COVID to respond to, and we have the fires. If money is stuck having to go someplace else simply because it's in the constitution, that's a big mistake. Can we go on to Proposition 16 on our general election ballot, Becky? It is, and this one is, again, uh, looking at a familiar sound for many of us, Prop 209 in 1996, which put um, into the state constitution the fact that businesses and public entities could not consider such factors as race or sex or color or ethnicity or, county of or, or country of origin in decisions about admissions, if they are schools or hiring or contracting, if we're talking about businesses and individuals. So that's in the constitution right now. This proposition would recommend that we change that. And that we would, so right now in 1996, we had Prop 209, it was a constitutional amendment. So it's in the constitution. The only way to change it is to get, out, get it out of the constitution, which prevents public programs from using affirmative action as it's typically known when making decisions about public education and employment. So right now you can't use that. Prop 16 would permit the government decision-making policies to consider race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in order to address diversity by repealing Prop 200's constitutional provision prohibiting such policies. And the effects of the measures would depend a lot on the future choices of state and local government entities as to what they're going to do with that. And what's the percentage then when we're changing a constitutional amendment, what percentage must approve this proposition, for instance? We haven't talked about with the other proposition, but for, we'll start here, 16. Is it a, a simple majority or is it 
No, I think it has. It's, it has to be the 60-something. I believe it has to be 60. And, you know, Claudia, I think I will let you know for sure. That was one of the things I meant to check. Because oh, okay. I think the big thing is people thought that maybe we had reached this, or they said they thought, that we had reached this stage of a colorblind society, and we wouldn't need those things any longer. And I think we have seen this year, if not before, that structural racism is alive and well, that it is going to take multiple efforts to overcome it, and that it is utterly justifiable to help make amends for that by being able to consider these other factors until we reach a stage where the color of your skin does not matter, that it is the content of your souls, but we are not there right now. And since this proposition has passed, the last one, we have seen a drop in enrollment. We've seen a drop in graduations for people of color. We've seen a drop in minority business hiring. And we've seen a drop in men and women of color making progress within their employment. Anybody who's reading the LA Times this week. Right, this whole series of representative journalism. A whole series of so, how well we haven't done it so far. So just a momentary discussion. When the league is going over a proposition like this, this is a social justice. This is a, a very complex, intentional kind of measure. Is there a real scrimmage going on in the background with the League of Women Voter membership to take a position on this one, among others? I would say not. And that's because we have a guide star. We don't take positions, whether we're talking about positions on propositions or advocacy in the public square, and we are an advocacy organization. We don't advocate for candidates and parties, but we sure as heck advocate, and I almost used a different word there. So if we think we're interested in something in the public square, we design a study. We get together a group of people who either know a lot about it already or who will find out a lot about it. We put together reading lists. We put together questions. We send them back out, if it's a national policy, to leagues all over the country who then read and discuss and think and argue and answer the questions. And all those go back to the central authority, whether it's the national league or the state league, where not only we don't just count the votes, as it were, we look for a consensus. So we want to know, say we're talking about California, are we hearing from the coastal counties, but also from the Central Valley? Are we hearing from the great big places, but also the rural? Are we hearing from the north and the south? Are we hearing from the coast versus the mountains? To see if we strongly enough believe what we decide on, that we will be prepared to defend it in a big way. And so we've already had our arguments about this. And we've come to the conclusion that our positions, as we call them, mm-hmm. support making this change. Not that their individuals can always disagree, and they will. And they, and they are still, because there, there are all kinds of ways of what, that the league has been weighing in. Are we finished with 16? I think we're close enough. Okay. So Proposition 17, restoring the vote after completing a prison term. One of the things I want to note about 17 is there's, there's no money against it at the moment. Uh, so the way it is now is that people on parole cannot vote. Everybody is aware that when people are um, in prison, they can't vote. But then when they come out, if they're on patrol, they, parole, they also cannot vote, although they've already served their term. At any given moment, around 50,000 people are on parole in California, and it typically lasts for three years. Now, those are people who've served their time. 
They're working to reintegrate themselves into society, paying taxes, hopefully participating or renewing participation in family and community life. What Prop 17 would let them do is vote while they are out reintegrating themselves into public life. Which is a rehabilitative kind of function. It's a rehabilitative, which we've come to see across party lines and on the national level. Rehabilitation works, helping people recover and change and thrive requires participation. Civic participation is a huge part of that. Feeling that you have the right to vote. I spent many years as a political activist and nothing made me sadder than calling someone cold turkey to talk about something and being told this was not in California. I've had that. I've had those conversations. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I mass transit or at a bar. It, I'm amazed when it comes up and it's, it's a delicate sort of disposition that that other person brings. And I, you know, there's, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. One of my most moving moments in the league involved being in a place where a house of worship, where the administrator, so the office person, what, and in charge of the whole thing, I mean, he was the administrator, was a man who had spent a long time in prison. He had never even registered to vote. He was so young when he was locked up. And when he found out that he could now register, he was not on parole, he was not mm. on probation, he and I both almost cried. This was a man who had absolutely turned his life around. He'd found faith, he'd found work, he'd found family, but as far as he knew, he couldn't vote. And that gift of voting, it's just profound, it's profound. Okay. And we're actually behind a lot of the country on this. There are 19 states and the District of Columbia who either restore voting rights on release from prison, or in the cases of Maine and Vermont, they never took them away. You can vote from prison. Right. We they heard do that, that in the presidential too. debate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's a great thing. So you've them. given us the position then. The, the, yes. The league has weighed in. We do. Please, okay. please vote yes. Okay. Proposition 18 that would allow, it's a very specific way of bringing a younger voter into the process. Absolutely. It's a simple change and probably given an audience that's based in a university community, uh, very understandable. In California, 17 year olds who are US citizens can pre-register to vote. And then if, when they turn 18, they're eligible to vote in the general election. That's where we are right now. This would say that if they will be 18 by the general, they can vote in the primary. So, for example, if they're going to get to vote for president, then they can help the party of their choice determine who's going to run for president by voting in the primary. If there happen to be some district uh, special elections in that same period, the period between the time that they were 17 and the time that they will be 18 at a general election, they could also vote in those. So it might sometimes involve a city council or a school board or some other reason that there's a special um, election. If there is, that's not as likely. Yeah, mostly it's not they're going to be on the all, general. It, it can happen. It can yeah. happen. Yeah. And um, interestingly, because our law allows them, people who are registered to vote to run for office, they could run for office uh, again if they would meet the statutory qualifications. Uh, and occasionally it could happen. There are some local jurisdictions like school boards that are already allowing kids to vote in school board elections because they have a stake. So uh, right now, young people are really underrepresented in the California electorate. A lot of them don't even bother to register to vote. Uh, allowing 17 year olds to vote will engage them early 
while they're still paying attention to the issues in high school or in while they're still enrolled in high school history. Yes, exactly. So I was that was a compelling pitch. Yeah, that if you vote the first time that you are able to register, there is a lot of evidence indicating that you are likely to be a lifelong voter. There is something very sacred about that first voting occasion. Once you are old enough to vote or you have become a citizen and registered, that cements you into the I'm a voting person. And that's what we want. We want voting to be a lifelong habit. It also, as I mentioned, if it's, it seems fair. If you're getting, get, gonna get to vote in the general, you should be able to vote in the primary. And I think all of us have seen that many 17 year olds are civically engaged. They're at the forefront of movements to improve the communities where they live. We value their representation in the ballot box. I, 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 I want to make a distinction with you is that it's not that they're lifelong, but that they're habitual. I see habitual. a higher frequency with the habitual. Yes. So, okay, well, that's, that is helpful. And I guess a little context like you gave us with some other propositions, where are other states on this voting age adjustment? Is this the first in the country? No, it is not. But I, I could not tell you. I will tell you that there are some movements out there. They're not yes, it is a movement. big okay. movements to have yeah. it be much younger, much yeah. younger. But um, I am not sure. So this is kind of the California incremental approach, as it were. Well, I don't think it's a matter of a camel's nose under a tent at all. No, 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 no. But, um, not but, a camel's yeah, increment. Yeah. Not, a lot of states do not allow it. Um, okay. And now Proposition 20, talk about how that is a, a sentencing issue there. Proposition 20 would change Prop 57, which we all voted for in 2016, which was a criminal justice reform emphasizing rehabilitation. And it reclassified some crimes as misdemeanors as opposed to felonies, for example. This initiative proposes to push things back the other way. So right now, felonies are considered by the legal system to be the most severe crimes. Less severe crimes are called misdemeanors. And over the past 10 years, lawmakers and voters, for example, Prop 57, have been reducing the punishment for people convicted of some nonviolent crimes, which has let some people out of prison earlier. If Prop 20 passes, it will undo part of these changes passed by lawmakers and voters over the past 10 years. For example, some petty theft type crimes will be pushed back up into the felony range. So people convicted of stealing items worth $250 to $950 could be sent to county jail for up to three years. In some cases, it would change the factors that could be considered for early release. And it also would expand the state's right to collect DNA from adults and save it in databases. It's a default. We yep. build a default into the system. Okay. Yep. yep. Wow. And even if it turns out that you're not guilty, um, you, it's on you to get it back out of that system if you can. <laughs> so. Well, that's uh, rather large. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So first of all, this proposition would roll back criminal justice reforms that were made to reduce prison populations and make the public safety system more just and humane. So the league opposes it for that reason. The privacy rights issue around the collection of DNA, also an issue. We also see that it could make it more difficult for people who are incarcerated due to nonviolent crimes to have their sentences reduced to supervised post-release. And it takes us backward at a time of Black Lives Matter when we are trying to confront the racism in our system. It's sort of indefensible in this particular time and era. And we've just started all across the country, both parties interested 
in trying to find a more humane approach to rehabilitation and to reducing criminal justice by giving people a stake back in the world again. And now we're going to go backwards. <laughs> and so let's pair that discussion with Proposition 25 on replacing money bail with a different kind of an algorithm, a, a yes. artificial intelligence kind of a system. This is a, a backwards again. So we hope you'll vote against Prop 20, but we hope you'll vote for Prop 25. <laughs> so right now we have a bail system. We believe that there are about 46,000 Californians, a disproportionate number of whom are black or Latinx being held in jail, but not yet sentenced because they couldn't make bail. A new law, SB 10, which was passed in 2018, replaced bail with a system based on public safety, not ability to pay. Under that system, some people would still have to check in with probation officers or wear a tracking device, but they would be able to avoid bail. However, it did not get implemented because this referendum for Prop 25 qualified for the ballot before the implementation date for SB 10. So we're sitting waiting to see whether or not we can hang on to this idea of abolishing bail and replacing it with a more humane and productive system, or if this proposition passes, we won't be able to do that. So if it passes, it will get rid of the bail system and allow that new SB 10 to go into effect. People charged with less serious crimes could be released before trial without having to pay bail. If the judge decides if they should be released or kept in jail based on whether or not they're considered a danger to the public or might not return to court. So it doesn't mean that everyone gets a get out of jail free card until they're tried. It means that people who earn it, <laughs> based on a system of evaluation would have that opportunity. And we can say some more about that in just a second. First thing is that cash bail has absolutely created an inequitable system that unfairly punishes the poor and, again, disproportionately affects Blacks and Latinos. Detention in jail because of a financial inability to make bail also means that a person might lose their job, their housing, their children, even without having been judged guilty. And it dramatically increases the pressure on people who did not commit a crime to accept a plea bargain to avoid the danger that if they go to trial, they might get something worse. So regularly people plead to something they did not do because they could not afford bail. They need to get out of jail as quickly as possible and get back to trying to support themselves and their families. So they take a plea bargain because they figure, well, it'll be a shorter term if I'm convicted. So that, that's a, a disastrous thing to have in this country. I know now, that there's been an internal discussion about there and whether the algorithms applied to the, this, the detention considerations for keeping someone detained in a jail, that the algorithm has huge biases about the whole background of the detainee. And that is that could lock in a judge's ruling or other ways that the detainee is being handled. And I know that's a big red it flag a for a lot of people. It is a discussion and it should be a, a warning and something that we have to pay attention to, which is always true whenever we reform anything. But at the current law, if it is allowed to go into effect, would require annual every year validation for bias and inequality, looking to see 
By whom? How, what would be the mechanism or the? I believe entity? it's by commissions. Okay. Like reports in any event. So mm. people will be tracking that, and then it can be corrected to the extent that it is there. And it's a, it's a legitimate concern, but the legislation already addressed that. And I think that also all of the groups that care about this, it is incumbent upon us to pay attention and see how it works out and change it if it doesn't. Okay, how about then, we're, we're repairing 20 and 25 because of the criminal justice sort of right. connection there. Let's go back then to Proposition 21. We'll say shorthand, it's a, a rent control capacity that would enable local governments. So please talk to what's the position and what this would do. The league is neutral on this one, but here's the way it is now. Certainly housing costs in California are higher than they are in other states. And several California cities have used rent control laws to limit landlords' annual rent increases. However, a state law, the Costa-Hawkins Residential Housing Act in 1995, prevents rent control on single-family homes and housing built after February 1, 1995, and it allows landlords to charge any amount they want when a new renter moves in. So those are all problems that tend to keep rents very high in this state. Courts have also found that landlords must also be allowed to increase rent on current renters enough to make a good profit, which I think no one can argue with. They should be allowed to make a profit. A new state law limits rent increases to five to 10% each year, depending on inflation, and applies to housing that is more than 15 years old, and it will be in effect until 2030. If Prop 21 passes, it would include housing built after 1995, except for single family homes owned by the people who own two properties or less. It would allow limiting rent for new tenants, but not to less than 15% over the first three years. And again, codifies the court finding that landlords must be guaranteed a fair rate of return. So the league supports efforts to deal with the housing crisis. We certainly need more affordable and sustainable housing. And in this moment, particularly with COVID, rent control may feel like a pretty affordable short-term solution. Mm. But there's plenty of evidence that it also stifles the development of decent, affordable, high-density housing. It would codify rent increases at a higher rate than is currently allowed. And new legislation, for example, the legislation that does apply to housing that is less than 15 years old, that uh, was built since 1995, has already addressed part of the changes that this proposition wants to address. So because it feels to the league that there are some benefits, but also some big drawbacks to rent control, we're going to stay neutral on this one. But I think that one of the points about this, though, it's an enabling legislation. So the local governments don't have to adopt a rent control ordinance, but it just gives them the capacity to do that if that is the situation. It does. But some of the things have actually gone in the wrong direction. So, for example, it codifies rent increases at a higher rate than currently allowed. Mm -hmm. And it may stifle the development of, of uh, affordable housing. Right. Evidence you mentioned that. that yeah. So you have to balance those things. Okay. Lots of things that come out as propositions are probably better dealt with in the legislature, where there can be a more robust examination of the pros and the cons, and hopefully people can work things out in a fairer way. And we, we are making progress on that in California. We now have a situation, for example, where when someone proposes a proposition, what we're looking for here is some things are probably better dealt with through the legislative process than they are 
through the blunt tool of ballot measures, particularly ballot measures that end up in the California Constitution. And California has made some progress on that. Right now, and this didn't used to be the case, if someone, some number of groups puts forward a proposition, there is a period when the legislature can enter into conversation with those people to see if a way can be found through the legislative process, which would not end up in this constitution, which would be easier to reverse, which would require fewer votes, and which allows for true fine tuning, as opposed to blunt edge hacking, which propositions tend to be in some ways, is a better way to determine some kinds of potentially legislative remedies than the proposition path. A lot of our neutrals are ones where we see that this is really something better worked out in a larger arena with somewhat lower stakes. For those of you who've joined us just now, my guest is Becky Newman. She's president of the League of Women Voters of Orange Coast, and she is going through the different types of positions work that the League of Women Voters have weighing in on all of the propositions on our November 3rd general election ballot. The, the vote by mail ballots are on their way out at this broadcast. We are, we are recording this interview on October 2nd. So just to timestamp that. So let's go to Proposition 22, the gig worker proposition. All righty. A lot of people call this Uber and Lyft proposition uh, because it is, in, in fact, devoted to app-based transportation and delivery companies. And this is one where the League actually has no position. Um, as I explained a little earlier in the interview, we can only advocate or take a position on a ballot measure where we ourselves have studied the issue and have sufficient knowledge to be sure that we are understanding it and that we understand what we think about it so that we can weigh in with confidence. And we simply do not have anything relevant to this particular one. So we're not taking a position at all. In any event, people probably understand the difference between an independent contractor, which is what Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and so forth, all their folks are. An employer generally has their work schedule or at least quantity and work set by their employer, employee, an employee gets benefits and protections, such as minimum wage, overtime pay, perhaps benefits. However, independent contractors typically get none of those things. And that is what the rideshare and the delivery companies are today. In 2019, California passed a law requiring rideshare and delivery companies to hire the drivers as employees. However, these companies have refused to obey the law, and in fact, the state is now suing them for refusing to follow the law. These companies in total are worth about as much as Ford, General Motors, and Fiat Chrysler combined. Mm -hmm. So they have a big stake in whether or not this legislation passes. If Prop 22 passes, then rideshare and delivery drivers stay as independent contractors. The companies would have to pay drivers 20% more than the local minimum wage, which they don't now, but only for time spent driving. They would ha have to help pay insurance costs for any contractors who drive more than 15 hours a week for them, and they would have to pay medical costs when a driver is injured while working. So some benefits to the drivers, even if they would remain as independent. Well, that's a big thing because there are 
there right now aren't there claims by employees that are saying they contracted COVID while they're driving and the gig companies are saying, well, you got to prove that. I mean, the burden of proof is pretty tricky. To well, it is, it is, but it's injured while driving. I'm not clear that COVID would be covered. That's what I'm, yeah. So there's, so, that's, exactly. there's some pretty fine print in those details. Well, yeah, I think, I think what they're saying is it would just be for car wreck kind of injuries, not health injuries in the sense that COVID So it's not it. like the workman's comp kind of thing. It is a very specific. Very limited. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And it, furthermore, it would limit cities and counties from putting their own rules on uh, rideshare or delivery companies. So it really preempts the field and the law with a special carve out for these companies. That's why it doesn't make sense to us. <laughs> so the people who are supporting this are primarily the Uber, Lyft, all of those guys to the tune of about $18 million. And the opponents are primarily unions and some good works organizations. So it depends on how you feel <laughs> about whether, um, how much advantage employers should be able to take of their employees and how much people are all entitled to certain kinds of protections. And there is there's diversity among drivers as well as members of the public um, on how to come down on this one. And Proposition 23, this is another go at how business is conducted at the dialysis centers throughout yes. the state of California. It's also, uh, this is Prop 23, and it is a rewarmed and uh, shall we say, uh, simplified version of a proposition we just saw last, last round in 2018 as Proposition 8. That one was rejected by 60% of the voters. Uh, so the same folks are trying again with this one. I think your audience doesn't need to know what dialysis is about, but it is useful to know that dialysis is almost always provided in California by what are called licensed chronic dialysis clinics. You can get it elsewhere. Some people get it at home, some people get it uh, in the emergency room for one reason or another, but the vast majority go to these chronic dialysis clinics. Which are owned, there's mainly two corporations. Mainly two corporations, they own 80% of them, okay? So the proposition, at the present time, a personal doctor, your own doctor, has to visit you at least once a month during treatment at the clinic to monitor how it's going, whether it seems appropriate and so forth. Dialysis is paid for by Medicare or Medi-Cal and sometimes by private insurance, which typically pays more than Medicare and Medi-Cal. And two private, as we just discussed, for-profit companies are the governing entity of nearly three quarters of these licensed chronic dialysis centers. The others are owned and operated by a variety of nonprofit and for-profit groups, and most of them make a profit. If it passes, Dialysis companies would have to have a doctor present during all treatment hours, unless there's a certified physician shortage in the state. Right now, they just have to have a doctor who is a consultant and a trainer and an evaluator sort of thing, but they don't have to have someone there all the time. It would also change requirements for how dialysis-related infections are to be reported. Clinics have to report those dialysis-related infections, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And Clinics would need state permission to close their doors and could not discriminate against patients based on how paying, which they also can't really now. So first of all, the league points out that there's disagreement as to whether the presence of a doctor is always necessary and certainly as to whether it could exacerbate a doctor shortage and oh, whether the costs involved are manageable or prohibitively high. 
So for example, you have registered nurses and you have uh, physician's assistants who have a considerable amount of training that should allow them to respond to uh, medical emergencies should they occur during di dialysis. So there's a question as to whether that's a necessary idea. Secondly, all these chronic dialysis centers are already licensed to receive Medicare and Medi-Cal. And one of the current federal requirements is that a board certified so board certified, not just a doctor who's graduated and gotten a license, must be affiliated with every single clinic and be responsible for quality of care, staff training, and clinic practices. Currently, the reports that are made to the National Healthcare Safety Network on dialysis-related infections, which would be required by Prop 23, they're already required by Medicare and Medi-Cal. So that's what, where they're reporting now, uh, because almost all clinics are taking Medicare and Medi-Cal patients. So they're already doing that reporting and there's no reason to set up a different system. And the league, most of all, questions why voters should be deciding questions of record keeping and medical staffing and the uncertainty of the costs and benefits of this measure make us feel that we should stay neutral on this one. It's not okay. that we're opposed to dialysis or, dialysis or health and safety, but it seems to us that this is again a case where the ballot measure arena is perhaps not the appropriate one. Tell us about Proposition 24, the Consumer Privacy Initiative. Yes. I don't imagine there's a single person listening who is not aware that when we go online and buy things or look at things or read things that we're being tracked. And in many cases, our, the data about us is used both to inform things that someone might try to sell us possibly to inform what kind of news we get to look at, at the top of our news feed anyway, and sells this data to people who are interested in having that data, although there are some protections for opting out. Now, in 2018, California passed something called the California Consumer Privacy Act, and that allows consumers to find out what data the companies are collecting, to tell a business to stop selling their personal data, and to have their data removed from the company's files. That law affects companies which buy, share, or sell consumer data collected from greater than or equal to 50,000 consumers, comma, households, comma, or devices annually. So 50,000 in any combination, consumer, household, or device. So whether we're talking my cell phone and my husband's cell phone, that would be two. Um, mm -hmm. Households, that would be one, and so forth. If Prop 24 passes, people would have some increased power over their personal data. They could contact companies to prevent them from sharing or using sensitive personal information, such as location, health, private communications. It would create an agency to do some enforcing and issue fines, but it also changes the level of data that would trigger enforcement. So right now, 50,000 consumers, households, or devices, under Prop 24, it would be equal to or more than 100,000 consumers or households, and they're no longer to count devices, despite the fact that if you have a large family and everybody has a cell phone, believe you me, your 17-year-old is not looking at the same things that you are. Um, right. They need to be counted as a separate consumer, mm -hmm. but that would not happen. So this is a 50-page law, very complex. There are a lot of privacy rollbacks and shortcomings. The burden of proof is much more on the consumer than under the present Consumer Privacy Act in terms of, for example, right now they can't charge you 
a special fee to make it easier to get your data out, but they would be able to do that. Buying clubs, things like that could get special carve-outs. So, you know, join something like Amazon Prime. That means you don't have to worry about this business of um, telling them not to collect your data. We'll take care of that, that sort of thing. So it, it's unfair in that way. It's extremely complicated. There are actually some things that took us the wrong direction in terms of the protections that are available to people. And the league advocates that let's, let's spend a little more time with the California Data Privacy Act and see if we can improve that without potentially throwing out the baby with the bathwater on this one, which we might be doing. 50 page laws are not things that individuals are well prepared to examine or think about or vote on. And the legislative process can offer an alternative to that. Who wrote this initiative? Uh, I think primarily the uh, people that collect the data. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, because that's that, like when you were saying that the it's on the consumer to contact the firm to dispense with sharing their data. That's an opting out, and we don't have a guarantee that you can that you've actually opted out. There's all kinds of backdoors we cannot really ascertain are closing up with our data moving out. Yeah, and, and if you have to do it for every single individual company rather than classes of companies or all companies that your uh, internet provider gives access to your data, that's not something that most of us have the time or the expertise or maybe even literally the bandwidth, either kind of bandwidth we're talking about to be able to figure all that out. Well, it's it, like asking me to evaluate which pills Kaiser should uh, have in its formulary. I'm not the best person to make those decisions. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really laud how generous it is for the League of Women Voters to spend all this time to understand this. And there are issues that any listener is going to take exception to, the position taken, but there, it's a service that this radio program is trying to do to add to the listener's literacy about what is on the general election ballot, especially as so much is drawing our attention all over the ballot with the fast-breaking developments from Washington, D.C. down to our city councils. This is such a tremendous effort that the League of Women Voters is availing us. And I, I really, really want to thank you, Becky Newman, for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. And uh, we have paid staff at the state level that does work on these things. But let me tell you, volunteers all over the state all year long are reading legislation, reading ballot measures, measuring them against our positions, measuring them against what we can learn about their effects to come up with these positions once the dust settles. And there are other organizations doing similar kinds of work and people should find the ones that they trust and check and see what they think. Stay involved. Well, my guest was Rebecca Newman, president of the League of Women Voters of Orange Coast. Thanks again. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we've got more down ticket action with Irvine Unified School District candidate Cyril Yu and Garden Grove City Council candidate Julie Diep. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Masks? Okay, now we know how important they are. <laughs> <laughs>